Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Core Dance and Flux Projects are illuminating the Decatur Square on weekends this month. Today, we'll hear about an installation of art and movement projected onto Core Dance Studios' large windows in the heart of downtown Decatur for all to enjoy. Later in the program, the author who won this year's award from the Georgia Writers Association for Best Literary Fiction, Zoe Fishman will discuss her novel Invisible as Air. First, some marvelous music coming your way very soon. The Emory Chamber Music Society of Atlanta is entering its 28th season, offering master classes and interdisciplinary classes at Emory, as well as lectures on music for the public. In addition, the group presents over 30 free public concerts featuring Atlanta's finest musicians, along with guest artists from around the world. Pianist and Emory professor Will Ransom is director of the Chamber Music Society. He joins us now with cellist Rainer Udekis, Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's great to talk with you again. Now, no deadly virus stops you from presenting wonderful concerts. Please tell us how this season will begin. That's right. I learned early on in, in this, uh, this world that flexibility is one of the most important things you can have, whether it's on tour in South America or fighting a, a, a pandemic like this. The show must go on somehow or other. And uh, we've all become so tech savvy these days and we've worked out to have our entire series online this fall. We've done some live stream concerts this summer that were wonderfully uh, attended, virtually attended by thousands of people from all over the world. And we're hopeful that, uh, that our series this fall will have the same following. So the first concert 
is Friday's recital with the two of you. Beethoven wrote five sonatas for cello and piano. The English cellist Stephen Isserlis has said that performing Beethoven's entire set for cello and piano is a journey through a life. Rainer, how do these works reveal Beethoven's development as a composer? Well, I think it both traces his development as a composer and the development of the cello sonata as a genre. Uh, we're we're going to play the, the third sonata, the A major, Opus 69. And what's really interesting if you contrast this one with, for example, the two that precede it, is that you really get a sense of the two instruments, the cello and the piano, being more or less equal partners throughout the piece. There's a lot of trading off and back and forth. Whereas in the earlier two sonatas and other sonatas from before that time, it's a lot more of a sort of soloist accompanist relationship musically. All you have to do is listen for less than a minute and you'll hear the same thematic material being pushed back and forth. And there's still a lot of freedom, but it's, it's very collaborative. Well, we know that he was a great enlightened thinker, so why not bring democracy to the chamber music? I mean, the pianist is not simply an accompanist here. Mm-hmm. That's right. Here, here. In fact, he called them sonatas for piano and cello. <laughs> Pianists always have to stick that in. <laughs> yeah, and the violin sonatas also, aren't they titled that way? That's correct. Well, he was one of the greatest pianists of the early 19th century. Rainer, is the fact that Beethoven himself was not a cellist, is that revealed in any way? Is there anything awkward? There, there are definitely some, some parts, um, particularly in this sonata, where you could, you could sort of imagine the line being conceived on a keyboard as opposed to a fingerboard, where it does take some creative adaptation to make it still sound lyrical and and effortless. musician is a great musician and he didn't write anything that was you know offensively awkward or anything that anyone can really balk at it's still doable and while it's clear that he wasn't predominantly a a string player it's it's not such a hurdle to overcome will you be playing all of the cello sonatas with will as far as i know this is all that we're planning on doing for the moment yes that's correct rainer's playing the third we, um, we've programmed through this 2020 Beethoven year, the 250th anniversary of his birth, all of the cello and piano and violin and piano sonatas. 
And of course, we got chopped off in middle of March and weren't ready to go online then. But I have been able to uh, replace the, the lost concerts. And so we will, over the course of the year, have all of these wonderful works performed. And uh, okay. Rainer's playing the third. And I have to say that this, this third sonata is one of my desert island pieces. It's, it's just one of the three or four pieces that I would never give up if I had to give everything up. It's got some moments in the first movement that will just tear your heart out. They're so achingly beautiful. Scherzo second movement and a short little, it's not even a movement, more an introduction to the finale that's one of the most beautiful three or four lines of music that Beethoven ever wrote. And then one of those moments in Beethoven in the last moment that is simply pure joy all the way through. This makes you smile. Rainer, you became principal cellist of the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra in 2019. With all that has changed so radically due to the pandemic, have you been able to feel integrated with the Atlanta music community? You know, I, I feel like I am definitely sort of embedded <laughs> In the music community, it really doesn't take so long once you start playing with some of the key figures in the local scene. And today is, is a perfect example. You know, I, I actually met Will about ten minutes ago, um, <laughs> but I'm already sitting at the couch in his home, and we're about to rehearse, and we'll have this concert this week. And you know, it doesn't take much. Music is such a good bridger of gaps, personally and musically. Um, and I also had the benefit within the sort of truncated season that last season was between the symphony, Georgian chamber players, Atlanta chamber players. Um, I got to play quite a lot in a short period of time. So that's been beneficial. Wonderful. Will, you have quite a work-filled weekend and the public can have quite a feast. Tell us about the concerts that will be performed the following weekend as well. Yes, it's, it's quite a kickoff to our season. And uh, we've had some amazing news that will be going out very soon and, and uh, will be announced uh, in person at our September 19th concert. But this first one this Friday at noon is live streaming from the First Presbyterian Church of Atlanta. Such a beautiful venue, such a great uh, music program that they have there. We're so grateful to them for hosting this. These are our Cook Noontime concerts that usually take place in the Carlos Museum, but we're not able to do those there this fall. They don't have the capabilities for live streaming. So we were able to move them to First Presbyterian. And then a week later on Friday the 18th at noon, we part of our good news for the season is that we have a brand new series in collaboration with First Presbyterian 
which was all set and in the works before all of the virus came down. And it's a new series, a complementary series to our Emory Noontime series. This one's called, appropriately for a church, especially Box Lunch. <laughs> they will be also be noontime concerts for an hour. Uh, of course, they were supposed to be live with a big audience and everything, but hopefully that will start, if not in January, then, then next fall. But our first Box Lunch concert happens on Friday the 18th at noon, and will feature more wonderful Beethoven and more wonderful musicians, including violinist Helen Kim again, as well as cellist Sherry Kruger playing the first sonata uh, of, uh, of Beethoven with, cellist, uh, with pianist Julie Coucheron. We also welcome Margot Maloney, who is a, an Atlanta native and who went off and is doing wonderful things around the world and around the country, playing in the New World Symphony, among many others. And she'll be joining us for the fourth violin sonata as well. And then our first Emerson series, which is our more formal evening series, will be on Saturday night, the 19th at 8 p.m., uh, live streaming from beautiful Emerson Hall at Emory. And we're thrilled to be continuing our complete cycle of Beethoven string quartets with three remaining concerts this fall. And the Vega Quartet will be joined by their uh, guest first violinist, David Kushron, the wonderful young concertmaster of the Atlanta Symphony. Their former first violin, Elizabeth Fayette, left the quartet over the summer in the midst of all this craziness. And so David is guesting with them for the fall, and they will be, uh, they will be auditioning for a new first violin for the Vega Quartet in the spring. In addition to all the music that's being performed, there will be music discussed by someone whose name is probably familiar to many of our listeners. Yes, we are thrilled that Bill McLaughlin uh, is going to do some lectures for us on Beethoven. We originally planned, of course, to have him here live to talk with us and to have live demonstrations by the Vega Quartet during his talk and to have questions from the audience, etc. Of course, that's all changed, but he has agreed to videotape a, a lecture for us. And so on each day of the three concerts featuring Beethoven string quartets this fall, uh, Bill McLaughlin will be doing a video presentation on that day's concert. So the first one will be on the 19th. Uh, at, that will be broadcast at 1 p.m., but it will be available for viewing after that as well, whenever people feel comfortable. Pianist and Professor Will Ransom, director of the Emory Chamber Music Society, with Atlanta Symphony Principal Cellist Rainer Eudekis. The Chamber Music Society's first concert of this season begins online at noon today. All of their concerts are free to the public. In a moment, public art and dance illuminate the Decatur Square. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta.
The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Public art meets dance in public with the latest collaboration of Flux Projects and Core Dance Indicator. With me now via Zoom are Sue Schroeder, the Artistic Director of Core Dance, and visual artist William Downs of Flux Project. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Lois, for having us. Yes, thank you for having us. How did this partnership come about? CORE was planning on changing our storefront. We had photographs up for quite a while to explain what it is we were doing, and we were looking for something uh, vital for the storefront and have so many videos in in our archives and, and continue to video for our work. And this being our 40th anniversary, our plan was to unveil a video installation frontage to our building that faces Decatur Square. And then COVID happened. And there was a synchronicity to that. We were planning this before COVID and it became all the more vital to actualize it during COVID. Um, so it's it's up and running. And once we got the tweaks in and out and figured out, we really started to look to what we really want to do in the long run is have artists, all genres, which you know that Lois is a, so much of our work uh, practice and process is to showcase artists of all genres on the storefront. And Flux, I was following as well. And I contacted Ann Dennington of Flux after seeing uh, the videos she was presenting in her visual art series online. And we came to a beautiful partnership to run them very full size on the four storefront windows of Core Dance on Decatur Square. And took the liberty to mix and match and make the videos fit to the screen. So it's quite, William, it's quite beautiful to see your work come over time uh, on these huge uh, platforms. What is it about your two organizations that provide a good fit for a project such as this? I would say that we both have a real commitment and ideology for the contemporary artist of all mediums. It's integrated in the work of both of our organizations are very multidisciplinary. And when I say contemporary, I mean the art that is being made now and work like what William is doing. But I love one of the things I love about William's work in the three drawings, I guess. Uh, You could correct me, William, if I don't reference it um, to your liking but they appear to be living in the moment, the way they're constructed. 
And that to me really speaks volumes to the, the work that we are interested in and uh, presenting, showcasing, amplifying, bringing attention to is this idea that this is a living, breathing thing that the artists are making now. Yes, yes, I agree, I agree. I'll add to that too, is my work is all about the spontaneity and the movement and the time base that something is wanting to happen. So I feel like for me, the animation is a new record of that that stems from the drawings where it's like a stagnant image, but it's moving. And the animation has recorded that to make it really move. And when I was asked to be a part of this, it, it was that moment of, yes, I have some ideas. I can come up with something really fast, but I'm going to give you an old one that wasn't so great and that was the first one and after watching the first one for a little while I was like wait a minute I need to improve on that right now so I instantly started um coming up with ideas on the iPad and next thing you know I'm like obsessed with animation. Hmm. You have three different works that will be featured would you talk about your Downs Adventure series? Yes so the Downs Adventures is a way of observing my practice and observing my traveling throughout the United States doing workshops and which are drawing workshops where I'm meeting people for the first time and I'm teaching them how to explore a medium that they feel intimidated with to, to kind of let go and it's just let the materials guide them through whatever experience that we're in. So for me, that's always an adventure is to see what someone could produce and see how they arrive at something special and amazing. So for me and my work, that's my approach. Like I, I love new things. When I'm not making wall drawings or making works on paper, I'm making experimental drawings with ink and objects and I'll make short little videos of them. So it's all about the mark making and that spontaneous moment. So with that, it's always an adventure to see what comes out of that experience. So I titled the whole three animations Downs Adventures because each one was a new adventure that I was exploring and trying to figure out how to make my characters who don't have a name or identity, they're just existing for that moment of interacting with each other. How can I give them a place and a space to activate and Floyd Hall called me up and we talked about that idea and he really loved it. So I just ran away with it and that's kind of how it began and ended and actually is evolving. Floyd is with Flux. Yes, he's with Flux. Yes. What can you tell us about the technology behind the video installation itself? What went into putting it together? It was quite a, um, a long-term feat. Uh, that's not my uh, area of uh, forte, for sure. And I'm completely inspired by what William was saying. It's exactly what we're interested in is the process. And what we would call it is the uh, artistic research that, that is the adventure. And so, no, we wanted to do that. Adam Larson, a video installation artist, consulted with us and first helped 
select the projectors. There's four projectors, there's one per window. And rather than existing um, in their normal position, which would be flat or horizontal, we've got them built to, or built stands so that they're on their sides so that they can project the full length of the windows. And then there was a, a film put on the glass and, and researching all the films we had originally hoped, and maybe it will come winter when the light is different. We had hoped that, that the windows would be able, you can see them during the day. They're very luscious at night. And maybe with the way the sun changes in the sky, we're gonna get more hours of uh, use of the images on the, on the window fronts. We also wanted the windows to still be able to bring light into the downstairs studio because we really love having natural light in our space. So we didn't want to do a really solid film uh, covering. So we, have, we selected the film uh, that covers the entire window surfaces. And then finally, we built our studios a rental space. And so there's lots of people to in and out and how to capsule and keep the the expensive equipment and the nuance of, of how the structures are set up and mounted, say from undue hands. So we had to build a whole structure on the inside of this building to cover that, like rooms on each side of the doors. And then finally uh, got really well known with QR Lab and brought in one of the dance artists now has taken on Walter apps has taken on the role of coordinating all our installations after being trained by Adam. So it's been this long process and I think we're just about there. So the dance is live. The dance is not live. The dance inside our studio is live, but this would be, if you were to imagine it, Lois, this would be walking through down the square indicator and seeing, I think these screens are probably five by nine feet windows. And there's four of them, two, two then our doors, and then two more. And so they are screens that project incredible uh, artist videos. And so Williams, to see Williams live and to see those drawings uh, become live in the process and see children watching watching the drawing happen is, is so compelling. The video installation will feature eight different artists. Are there any unifying themes throughout these artworks? William, you could probably speak to it perhaps, but I think the biggest thing was how they dealt with creating work during COVID, was really. Yeah, I think that's like the, the connector. Because I think that's what Floyd and I were talking about in our conversation when he was asking me to do something. And I think that might have brought everybody together through that moment of working through that moment of March and April. Uh, now, will the videos be in constant rotation for people to view during the weekends? Yes, they will. They start running at 7 p.m. on Friday, and they really run... 24-7 right now until Monday morning on a loop. So there, uh, we've organized them in a particular way, separating Williams' three drawings so that they can return again and again. So all of them as a, as a unit then loop and repeat again. Oh, wow. William, there is a long tradition of 
artists providing scenery and set design for dance. I think probably most famously Stravinsky and Picasso, Rauschenberg more recently, and David Hockney. How do you feel being in concert with dance? Well, Merce Cunningham is probably one of my favorites, and Trisha Brown is another favorite in Rauschenberg. So I feel like since I've studied them for so long, and I taught at MICA, Maryland Institute in Baltimore, I taught a performance art class for painters and drawers, which was kind of a strange thing because it was like a way for shy people to kind of like reenact something or do something in front of a lot of people and kind of let their guards down. With that, I talked a lot about Merce Cunningham and his collaboration with John Cage and Rauschenberg. So we kind of looked at how artists and dancers kind of embraced each other and kind of used movement as a way of uniting their layers of stuff like line and movement, space, so for me, I really do find a very a kinship with dancers and people that use movement. I'm studying them every, every time they move to trace their body to make a drawing in my brain. And then when I sit in my studio, all of that comes out. So I really love that collaboration. Atlanta artist William Downs and core dance artistic director Sue Schroeder you can see the virtual art series installation on display in the windows of Cordan Studio in the Decatur Square every weekend through September. This is City Lights on 90.1 WABE Atlanta. On June 13th, the Georgia Writers Association announced the winners and finalists of the 56th Annual Georgia Author of the Year Awards. The winner in the category of literary fiction is Zoe Fishman for her book, Invisible as Air. She joins us now via Zoom. Congratulations and welcome. Thank you so much, Lois. It is a true honor to be here. The main character in this story is Sylvie Snow, a 46-year-old married woman with a 12-year-old son, and she becomes addicted to painkillers. Why did you want to write about drug addiction? Well, when I was starting to think about my concept for this book, there was a lot of attention in the media about OxyContin and how it was taking over entire communities and ravaging you know, all types of people from every class and strata and gender. And I wanted to start there. I wanted to take an upper middle class white woman and place her in peril because of an addiction she forms to the drug. You know, in marriage, in life, I think we all see what we wanna see. And drug addiction often isn't acknowledged or seen simply because 
people are too busy looking at or thinking about themselves. So I kind of started from there. Did you have any personal experience with drug dependency? You know, I didn't. I certainly have an addictive personality, so I understand that tendency. The only experience I had with OxyContin, um, specifically Percocet, was after the birth of my two sons. I left the hospital with prescriptions both times, and gratefully, I wasn't in that much pain. But the drug itself just made me feel wonderful. I was so stressed out about being a mother, especially the first time, um, and balancing all these new responsibilities I had and this new identity, you know, as a mother. And I would take one of those pills and just immediately relax. So that's where I also, I drew from that experience. Because your descriptions are vivid. I'd love to read some of them if I could. Wow, yeah, sure. Two hours after swallowing the pill, you're right, Sylvie was an undulating ripple of goodwill. It was a miracle, really. Bubbles of goodwill coursed through her bloodstream, making her kinder, softer, more fluid. And then later, you're right, the pill began to work its magic slowing everything down, trapping time and space in jello. She felt buoyant and young, and the light inside or outside became almost comically ethereal. What leads Sylvie to take her first pill? Sylvie Snow suffered a, a stillbirth three years prior to the book opening. It was a very painful experience for her and her family, and it was never resolved. So she's been carrying this burden of repressed grief for three years. And it's not because her husband hasn't tried to speak with her about it, hasn't tried to seek therapy for both of them. It's because of her own stubborn nature. So she's, you know, stuffed it inside and hasn't accessed it. Her husband is a wannabe triathlete, and he falls off his bike one morning and breaks his ankle. And he's prescribed OxyContin for the pain, but doesn't like the way the pills make him feel. So he gives her the pills and says, throw them out. And it just happens to coincide with the anniversary of her daughter Delilah's death. And so she eyes the pill bottle and thinks, you know what, what's the big deal? How great can these be? So she just takes one, and that leads to a quick addiction. Hmm. And not only does she feel good, her husband and son welcome the change in her disposition. They're amazed by her sunny outlook and have no clue as to the reason for the change in her behavior. Would you introduce us to Teddy, her son, and tell us a little bit more about her husband, Paul? Sure. Teddy is 12 years old. He is an insightful, eccentric, artistic kid. He 
experienced the same trauma when he was nine. So he's holding that inside as well. And I think witnessing such an event gives children an intuitive and empathic nature that otherwise is hard to come by at that age. He loves movies. He dreams of being a director. He has a little notebook that he writes thoughts down and ideas for plots and screenplays constantly. He's a really good kid. He's, you know, plagued by the same issues a lot of 12-year-olds are plagued with. I'm not popular. People don't like me. But most of all, he is comfortable in his own skin in a way that a lot of 12-year-olds are not. Paul, her husband, is a very nice guy. He has his own demons. You know, after trying to speak with his wife about Delilah's death and being shut down, he starts to fill the void in his own life by compulsively shopping for his new exercise obsession. He doesn't know how to help Sylvie. She won't let him help her. She shut him out of the experience, even though obviously he was very much involved. And so really, again, something that starts as a very positive reaction to grief exercise turns into an addiction as well. I found Teddy's role especially captivating. What is the importance of his bar mitzvah preparation in this story? I wanted to place him on the precipice of such an event because I'm Jewish and there's so much, you know, the bar mitzvah is supposedly the moment when you transition from boy to man or girl to woman. And I wanted to put him in that place. I also wanted to explore when you, when you experience grief, when something traumatic happens to you, I think it's only natural or not natural for some people to question God. Um, and so he's in the middle of questioning God and you know why bad things happen to good people, just as he's supposed to get on the bima and and show the congregation his devotion to his religion and to God. So I wanted, I was really interested in exploring his thoughts as that day neared. Teddy's love for movies leads him to volunteer at a retirement home. What does he take away from that experience? Oh, so much. That was so fun to write about. I, you know, I'm a very structured writer for the most part. I don't start writing until I have an outline. And when that retirement home appeared, it came out of nowhere. And for a writer, especially like me, I love it when that happens because that means that the story has taken on a life of its own. And once I had that in place and the movie night, I was able to create these secondary characters that just brought me such delight to write, especially Morty. And Morty teaches him a lot about life and he takes with him knowledge about 
you know, everybody has a story and tragedies happen to everyone. You just have to listen and you can watch sometimes people's response to tragedy is very inspiring and that's a gift. And I think he learned that from Morty. There are some other great supporting characters. My favorite is a plucky girl named Crystal. (laughs) Crystal with a K? Yeah. First of all, I love an underdog. And second of all, I love to disprove people's initial reactions to others. And on the outside, she doesn't appear to be this smart sort of saint. And she is. And in effect, she saves Teddy and his family. So she's an unlikely heroine, but I would call her the heroine of the story. And she is also from a different class background. And that has brought out as well. I'm always interested in the way different classes interact and the invisible and not sometimes visible lines in the sand that are drawn around people. And I wanted to show a young girl who transcended all the initial reactions people probably had to her. Yes, she does. Sylvie, our main character, is pathetic, but she is not likable. What what is it like to write a character who is selfish and unpleasant? Do you worry that readers just will say, I can't stand this person? (laughs) Well, I think earlier in my career, I really did worry about that. But in this case, her vulnerability, the hurting, the fact that she's broken inside, I think that that's endearing and relatable, despite the fact that she makes these horrible decisions. As I wrote this book, I was going through a very difficult time in my own life, and I couldn't be selfish. I couldn't be a jerk. I had two young sons to be a role model for and happily so and so I kind of used Sylvie as my way to express all the things I might have wanted to say um, to people and that was a lot it was cathartic and fun for me and I really enjoyed her response to a lot of the people that don't understand grief and because they don't understand it ignore it. And so using her to voice her opinion in regard to that was very, very helpful for me just getting through what I was getting through. Although she's able to say those things after she becomes a nicer person or becomes behaves more nicely because she's emboldened by the drug. Yes. The climactic point of the book occurs on Cumberland Island. Can you talk about the importance of that setting? 
without spoilers, I leave it to you to navigate. So, Sure. Have you ever been to Cumberland Island, Lois? No, I've only read about it. It's such a magical, spooky, life-changing place. Uh, My husband and I went there on, I guess, a baby moon before I had my second son. And it's a long drive. You get there, you take a ferry. There's nowhere to stay on the island. I think there might be one fancy hotel, but we stayed at an inn um, that the ferry took us back to. And there are all these ruins there from life long ago, plantations that were burned to the ground, these amazing trees and sand. It just feels, you can feel the energy of the past there. And then we walked and walked and walked. I was eight, seven months pregnant, seven and a half, and it was very hot and I was very unhappy. And we finally get to the shore and the water was so languid, I remember, and I just, you know, collapsed on the sand. And all of a sudden, these wild, feral horses appeared that didn't have any interest in us and walked by in a pack of three. And I was touched. I was moved by nature and wildness. And I always wanted to write about it. I, I was looking for a chance. And so I was very happy. And I knew when I started the book that that's where I wanted the climax to occur. And so I did. And I think the fact that they, you know, they're not in their comfort zone physically and emotionally makes for what I consider to be a satisfying climax in terms of their family unit. Yes. In fact, the cover art of the book is a scene on Cumberland Island. The overarching theme of this novel is coming to terms with death, specifically the stillborn baby girl the family had already named Delilah. Would you talk about how each of the characters deals with their grief? Sylvie refuses to acknowledge it. After the death of her daughter, she initially feels seen by her family, at least Paul and Teddy. And then she sees it as right after the three-month stop, they went on with their lives. And so she became very angry and she internalized all that anger. And so she vowed never to speak about it again. She's got this its PTSD buried deep inside that she hasn't dealt with. Paul has also been incredibly damaged. He thinks about the what if all the time, if Delilah had survived. He tries to speak to his wife about it. She won't let him. And so, as I mentioned before, he takes exercise as his remedy, but because he hasn't dealt with his own grief, a shopping addiction rises out of what's initially good intent because he has this void. His wife is missing. 
emotionally. Uh, the daughter that was supposed to be is not. Teddy's grief is not only grief for the sister that he imagined that he never got to have, but he's also grieving his family. His mother and father are not in tune. He doesn't really think they love each other. I think a lot of times parents don't give kids intuition enough clout. I know when your parents don't like each other, you know, it doesn't matter how old you are. The problems pervade the home. So his grief, I think that's what his love of movies grew out of. This idea of a happy ending, no matter what, um, is very appealing to him. Hmm. So I read about the sudden death of your husband three years ago. He was only 44 years old. Your little boys, your little boys ages two and five. And this book is dedicated to your father who died just last year. How did your own grieving inform this story? Oh, wow, so much. You know, when I started writing this book, when I submitted my idea to my agent, um, I hadn't written the manuscript yet. And it was always going to be about Sylvie Snow's stillbirth and her addiction to pills as a result. But I hadn't, I'd been fortunate enough not to experience trauma really on any level or on a very mild one at best. And as my idea, my novel was being accepted by my editor, my husband was dying and um, it informed everything. It was my therapy. Unless you go through something like that, you really don't know how it feels. So it was my savior, this book. It really was. And then my father got very ill and Morty became my way of saying goodbye to my father. Morty is very much like my father. So it saved me, this book. It really did. I, as hard as it was to write, I think that um, it saved me. Well, I think that many readers will find the catharsis and consolation that results in coming to terms with grief. And again, congratulations on winning that wonderful award for best Thank you so much. Best literary fiction. And I loved seeing that clip of you and your little boys <laughs> finding out the news and just <laughs> shrieking with glee. I think everyone should look at it. Thank you. I'm so glad I taped it just in case because it really is an encapsulation of our relationship um, as a family of three. And even though my husband is not there, he's there. And I think that's what I'm watching that back 
watching that back, I felt him there. And that was, you know, when someone you love that much dies, you look for him or her everywhere. And somehow I saw him. And so it made that award even more special for me. Zoe, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Zoe Fishman is the author of Invisible as Air and winner of the 2020 Georgia Writers Association Award for Best Literary Fiction. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. We'll be back Monday at 11 a.m. to learn about a new recording in the series Music in Exile, dedicated to the recovery of music lost or marginalized during the Nazi era. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.